Hello, it's Janet from the Restart Project, and we're nearing the winter solstice, which we kind of like to think of as nature's restart. And you're in for a real treat with this episode, which is about a special kind of light. But first, we wanted to ask if you've listened and appreciated our podcast over the past year, could you make a donation? We're a small, scrappy team, and your gift is going to go a long way. Just go to therestartproject.org slash give. Thanks, and now for some lasers. If I can get young adults and adults to sort of forget themselves and be in the moment, I think that's a really special thing. And I think art doesn't always have to be too cerebral or intense or dark or dramatic. I think art can be joyful and fun and playful. And to me, that's just as valuable an experience. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In the last 2020 episode of the Restart Project podcast, we're letting some light in at the end of a difficult year. Seb Liedelau is a laser artist, presenter, coder and repair cafe volunteer. His latest project, Laser Light City, allows the public to control lasers that can be seen across the night sky for miles. In today's episode, I talk to him about interactive art, how this year has changed his work and, most of all, about lasers. I'm Seb Liedelal. I'm an artist that uses technology to make interactive projects. And over the last few years, I seem to be working more and more with lasers. Lasers is such a, a cool word to say. Like, I feel <laughs> like like when I go to parties, people say, what do you do? I say, I'm a podcaster. People's eyes glaze over. But I feel <laughs> like you go to a party and you say, I do stuff with lasers and everyone suddenly gathers around you. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, really? I feel like lasers have gone up and down in the cool stakes, right? So if you think about the early adopters of like laser visuals in the 70s with Laserium, which was just a worldwide phenomenon, drew in millions of crowds all over the world, which is, you know, it's a laser show in a planetarium, right? And it visited all the planetariums all around the world, including London Planetarium, which is where I saw it when I think I must have been like 11 or 12 or something. I feel like in the 90s, laser control systems got a bit more sophisticated, so you could do animations and graphics with them, and it just got terrible. Like, the animations were so cheesy. Of course, it was technically impressive, but I feel like it lost a bit of credibility through the 90s. I was in a band in the 90s, and everything that we did was trying not to sound like the 80s. Right. (laughs) And now, of course, I'm just embracing it, like all the music I do and all the graphics that I do. It's quite nice to just embrace that synthy kind of cheesy 80s vibe, which runs through so much of my work. (laughs) Right. You've kind of come to lasers through, is it visual arts or just art in general? Yeah, it's it's through coding, really, I guess. So I learned to code when I was like 11, and this would have been 1983. My dad used to bring home computers from his college where he worked. And so I learned basic on a little pocket computer. I was always very creative, though. So I just wanted to draw pictures and animations. Back then, you know, there was no software to do any of that. So you'd literally have to code it. And so really, that's why I learned to code. And the rest of my career has just been the same, (laughs) like drawing things and animating things with code. But it's been through several kind of phases. You know, one of my early jobs was 
doing coding for Amiga projects. You know, then I left to become a musician for many years. And then I started doing websites to support my rock and roll habit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I ended up doing like multimedia and flash games, did flash games for many years, had a successful company that made flash games. My work there with the company won three BAFTAs. They're still going, by the way, but I just stepped away from that sort of production treadmill about 10 years ago. And since then, I've been concentrating on these larger scale interactive installations, very large light installations. And really, that's where the lasers came in, because initially I was doing things with projectors. I had this big project called Pixel Pyros, which is interactive digital fireworks. But that was the first time I really did an interactive fireworks project, apart from some early tests way back in 2006. But this was the first time I had a big interactive projection project screen that was 18 by 12 meters, huge projector these lights that were projected along the bottom and if you touch them it would trigger a firework the first time we did that at Brighton Digital Festival in 2012 it went really well and people from the Arts Council were there and they said you should really take this on tour we could only really afford one 11 watt laser then and we'd rent it in at a thousand or two thousand quid a time or whatever and it was just providing these little spots of sparkliness on top of the traditional projectors and really since then it's just gone up and up and up for probably about five years my projects would only usually involve like one 11 watt laser that's a, a really serious bright laser right it's like if you think of a laser pointer they're usually half a milliwatt so 11 watts is over 20,000 times brighter than that but in the last couple of years two or three years it's really leveled up I've made some good friends in the laser industry and I've got access to so many more lasers I've invested heavily in a lot of lasers towards the end of last year I was using like eight of these 11 watt lasers on a project and then of course this year just from what I've done in Leeds I had a project with 25 lasers on and the biggest ones there were like 30 watts so (laughs) this year has just leveled up in scale but At 30 watts, you're getting pretty scary, but that's what I needed in order to get laser beams going through the sky (laughs) across the city. (laughs) I think like people, when they hear lasers, they they think science fiction. They might think about laser pointers, like you say. I remember a lot of kids in school shining those into the teacher's eyes. (laughs) That says a lot about the kind of school I went to. (laughs) Lasers can be about like practicalities rather than arts. You know, like I've got a a good friend, Martin Zoltz-Oswick, who used to use lasers in medical settings. People who listen to the Restart Project podcast will not be surprised at lasers in the arts because our theme music that we use on the show was created using lasers and uh, repurposed electronics. Nice. You've sort of mentioned it already, but your latest project is Laser Light City, which happened in Leeds at the end of October. Can you go into that in more detail and tell us all about that project? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's all I can really think about at the moment. It was a huge, huge undertaking. To start this story, I need to go back to the beginning of the year, (laughs) right? And also I need to sort of make the distinction between laser beams flying through the air, which is how most people experience lasers at gigs or whatever. They'll see the laser beams going through air and they're generally referred to as like atmospheric effects. They're sort of volumetric effects. They're the laser beams making light in the middle of the air. And obviously you need hazers and stuff like that for that effect. But that's the common use of lasers. I'm just going to do a horrendous name drop now. 
but last year was my first kind of music gig doing that sort of laser beam effects and I spent about six weeks like programming some <laughs> custom software to do it I didn't use any of the existing software and that was for Fatboy Slim so it was kind of like my first experience in that environment was like this international superstar it's something that I've mostly shied away from throughout my time working with lasers I've always been much more interested in sort of drawing shapes and patterns and animations with the lasers, like as they hit the building. And by moving the mirrors really fast in the lasers, you can draw really complex shapes. And that's really what all of my work has been. And it's quite difficult to do that algorithmically. So over the last few years, I've been building this library called OFX Laser, open source library for open frameworks, so that other people can do graphics and animations with lasers. But with the traditional software, it's much harder to do that in a sort of real-time generated way. But of course, doing that sort of projection, you don't need like really powerful lasers to get really sparkly bright effects. Going back to sort of January, February this year, I was working on a new fireworks project. And how that works is that I'm building these incredible LED light sticks. So I wanted to do something like Pixel Pyros, but I can't project with the laser something that you touch, right? Because you can't point lasers at people. So instead, I designed these LED light sticks with capacitive touch sensors all the way down them. So that's where the light starts on this stick. And when you touch the light on the stick, the LEDs fly up the stick, you know, in an animation. When it gets to the end, it seamlessly transitions to like a laser projection, which carries on the sparks and the firework rocket up the building. And we just did the first test run of that project in Aberdeen at Spectra in February. And I had about two or three other big commissions for that throughout the year. And it was like, that's my year. This is the year I replace fireworks with electronics. But yeah, of course, the pandemic hit. (laughs) And it's just a very frustrating time. Well, I mean, it was obviously horrendous for many, many people. But lots of light festivals were just in limbo, really. I actually threw myself into 3D printing protective gear for the NHS, you know, so I had my 3D printer running the whole time and I was designing adapters for snorkels and things like that to try and help this shortfall. And then as part of the sort of applause for the NHS, I was like, I can do more than just stand on my doorstep and applaud, surely. I've got all these lasers here doing nothing. So I just set them up on the back of our flat. We live on the top of a building at the top of a hill in Brighton. So we've got a good sights lines over Brighton. So I just started pointing lasers out the window. I got all the permissions and stuff. Don't worry. Basically got a blanket permission for like a whole month or six weeks or something. So every Thursday night while everyone was clapping, I'd be firing laser beams out the back of my house and projecting like hearts and messages onto nearby tower blocks. (laughs) And the response to that was so positive. People don't usually see lasers flying across their city skyline and people responded really well. And it just made me realise right now we're so desperate for a bit of spectacle, a bit of entertainment. I always knew the arts are important, but the response to that just made me realise that people needed this stuff. And so that really gave me the idea for Laser Light City. Could I get lasers big enough so that we could just project them over the sky and you wouldn't have to leave your house? (laughs) It was a lockdown project. And if lockdown is in place or whether it's restricted, this project still works. For me, I'm never really happy just deciding what happens with my projects. So that's why Laser Light City is fully interactive. So you get to control these 
lasers through your phone. And I'm just really thankful that Light Night Leads went for it in a really big way. But it suddenly got very serious then. So I knew I had a, a summer of development work an investment, you know, we had to buy a bunch of these lasers to test them out. And we had to learn how they worked and how to make them the most visible in all the different weather conditions. And of course, the software, which was a huge, huge, complex setup with multiple online servers. For me, it was critical. The latency was really low. You want to just drag your finger across the phone screen and immediately see a massive laser in the sky moving, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and so that's why I spent so long and so much effort on the system itself. And it's different from most of my projects because the core concept of this project is very simple. The visual effects are quite simple. It's an enormously complex network of servers. It's sort of like a really complex web project. It's not like, oh, I get to draw nice patterns with lasers on a wall. It's like, oh, great. I've got to come up with a robust network protocol now. (laughs) Well, I mean, at least I guess it must have been nice to be able to throw yourself into a project like that in between the lockdowns as we discovered it would be now. I mean, this is like the day before the second UK lockdown. And it seems very evocative for you to be talking about ways of giving people joy within these times. Diwali is, is I, th- I believe, is, is part of this lockdown. And so it's interesting to think of a way of replacing fireworks in a way that, that kind of works in these times. I love fireworks, right? Don't get me wrong. A, a good fireworks display in its place, I can really enjoy. But I hate fireworks too, because they bring in constant sounds like it's a war zone for a whole chunks of time terrify pets terrify people like me who are anxious in general and it seems like lasers could be a brilliant replacement maybe more sustainable environmentally too in some ways yeah so much i mean fireworks are hugely problematic and you know as someone who loves sparkly effects (laughs) it's you know, obviously I'm drawn to fireworks. Right. Fireworks are incredibly aesthetically diverting and attractive to me. But like you say, they're hugely problematic. You know what you're saying about nervous people? There's so many neuroatypical people yeah, out right. there who have so, who suffer so much from fireworks. When I was doing Pixel Pyros, as it was back then, you know, I had a, a guy come up to me saying that he really appreciated it because he was suffering from PTSD from one of the wars. You know, so there's all these things that you just don't think about. People with guide dogs who are troubled by any pet owners hate November, right? Right. <laughs> and that's before we get to the environmental impacts right right there's the particles the damage to property and that's even before we get to any of the safety aspects of it all the people that are injured every year (laughs) it's just crazy so i mean i feel like fireworks you know what are they thousand years old something like that they're very very old we haven't really been able to get anywhere near it right in terms of brightness or spectacle until recently right but now we've got super bright leds we've got these lasers with my fireworks show you can run it all night long for a whole week people can come as they want you know it can be like a trail it doesn't have to be a 10 minutes and you're done you're controlling the fireworks it's an interactive experience normally it's like You can't even light the touch paper, let alone get anywhere near what's going on. You know, it can be run on renewable energy. It's actually very efficient. The lasers don't draw much current compared to traditional projectors. So I feel like fireworks are a technology that has had its time. And now it's time to move on to something more sustainable. You know, I can't recreate fireworks as they are 
but I can do something different that's equally as spectacular, that has many more benefits. And something that just suits the times and the conditions of the times and environmental impacts that we so important that we adhere to these days. I mean, we're literally destroying the world, right? Why are we also adding to that just for our fun when we don't need to? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I could, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and like with your past projects, like Pixel Pyros and and Laser Light Synths, Laser Light City is also about kind of interactivity, as you've kind of described. Like people literally get to to be the people making the the lasers work. Yeah. What draws you to making interactive work? Oh, there's so many things. I've done projects where I decide what happens. <laughs> There's a couple of them, but I never find it as fulfilling as if I make a system. And because I'm a coder, I can make systems. I think so many visual artists are limited to what the software they use gives them. You can usually design a linear experience, right? It's very difficult with most software to do anything interactive. So the first thing is because I like making systems and I have a lot of experience making games and things that respond to you in a satisfying way and I always find that much more interesting than a preset animation so that's the core of it and of course the side effect of that is that you produce a much more compelling experience we've already covered this a little bit like you standing there for 10 minutes looking at a fireworks display is cool but isn't it cooler to actually do something that engages you and I should just say that I try and aim to get young adults and adults to interact And I feel like if you've done a good enough job, you can get people in that age group to kind of forget themselves. You know, I think with all of my projects and my projects have varying degrees of interactivity. So there's like a sliding scale there, not only the simplicity, but also the sort of amount that you're put on the spot. I quite like putting people on the spot a tiny bit, but not enough to make them really uncomfortable, just enough to make it interesting. For Laser Light City, for example, because of the nature of it, there's always a queue. And so you're waiting for your turn and then there's like a countdown. There's always a bit of drama. It sort of puts you on the spot. It's an exciting experience, I hope. If I can get young adults and adults to sort of forget themselves and be in the moment, then I think that's a really special thing. And I think art doesn't always have to be too cerebral or intense or dark or dramatic. I think art can be joyful and fun and playful. And to me, that's just as valuable an experience as, you know, watching a tragic movie or something. We do forget about the simple pleasure of just enjoying a thing for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the art world probably has a tendency to hold up the deeper experiences, the more cerebral experiences. And I think that's because that's a side effect of any sort of sector not being taken seriously, right? Right. Or not being funded well enough. It's like you feel a slight insecurity to prove your worth all the time. You know, and I've certainly never quite felt a part of the art world because I shamelessly produce things that are fun. And I would always do that instinctively. And it's only recently I've learned that obviously those joyful experiences can be very intense as well. I think these times have made people like realise how entertainment isn't a dirty word. In these dark times, light, again, is something that gives us nourishment, which is a deep thing, as you were kind of saying. (laughs) 
So lasers, right? When and if people do bother you at parties and say, explain lasers, how do they work? What's your kind of simple layperson's way of describing how lasers work? Well, I mean, the slightly shameful part is that I don't really fully understand how the laser generators themselves work. But I understand very well how to use them and how to make them look nice. I mean, that's exactly that. I'm the same with microphones, so I'm not going to like, I'm definitely not going to shame you on that. I sort of know how the laser projectors that I work with, I know enough about them to be able to service them. And I know all the component parts and all the drivers and the power supplies. You know, these days, lasers themselves come in little boxes with magic inside. And you put current through them and a laser comes out. And also the sort of lasers I'm working with have red, green and blue sources. And they're all combined into a single beam i can adjust the brightness of each of those three colors to produce almost any color you'd like they hit a couple of mirrors mounted on galvanometers which are the same things that you know vu needles on old music equipment basically an electromagnet you know a coil it's like a motor but it only moves a small amount but very very fast the laser hits the first mirror oscillating one way that makes the laser move left and right and then the second mirror is at a right angle to the first mirror that makes it move up and down. And if you move those mirrors fast enough, you can move the lasers and draw shapes. Like you can even split a laser up into multiple beams. I mean, it's still always one beam, but it's like it's moving to one place, turning on, then turning off. The mirrors move to the next place and then it turns on again and turns off again. Then the mirrors move to the next place and so on and so on and so on. It happens so, so fast that it looks like there's multiple beams coming out of the same place. So, yeah, that's essentially it. It appears that laser technology's got cheaper and it's kind of more widespread than it once was. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, there's a growing hobbyist community of laser hobbyists. I mean, mm. hobbies, hobbies are a strange word anyway. It's a tricksy word. Can you sort of tell us more about this hobbyist community? I guess the important thing there is that they have got a lot cheaper in the Chinese and making incredibly affordable lasers now. So, you know, even from when I started working with lasers, like the 11 watt laser would be 50 grand or whatever. And now it's probably going to be less than 10 grand. So it's got more affordable for professionals like me. I mean, I guess I only sort of obliquely see the hobbyist stuff. Some of it worries me a little bit because there's a laser cube. It's by Wicked Lasers. And it's this incredible small laser. It's literally this big. You can hold it in your hand. I think it's four or $500. It's one watt, which doesn't sound much, but it's very bright and can definitely blind you got a controller built in it comes with some software that they made it also works with my software or with my code library i should say so you know just the fact that this thing exists it's on a battery it's got a battery in it it's cheap you know it's it's a great device but it worries me that part of the thing they sell is the ability to like laser etch into things with it and set things on fire and it's like so weird because i just I guess that is kind of cool, but people seem to think it's really way the coolest thing about lasers is that you can burn stuff with it. And it's for me, that's never really been any of its appeal. Lasers are really dangerous. And it's funny because it's not very difficult to make them safe. You literally just don't point them at anyone. That's like the easiest. But I do worry that the sort of power of lasers you can get now without necessarily understanding the risks. And you mentioned there like you have developed software for use within laser contexts as well. Yeah. You don't just do events and installations and you came to all of this through coding. Yeah. I mean, do you have any kind of highlights in, in, in how your software has been used recently? 
it's it's funny because I don't necessarily hear from people. Right. There's been two or three like really nice projects made with it. There's a really famous, well-known creative code. Uh, well, it's, it's this guy called Golan Levin. And I've met him a couple of times, not for a while now, but he's been very influential on creative code community for many, many years, you know, 10, 20 years. He does some really fun projects that are quite interactive and not too serious. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember he did a project a few years ago with lasers. It used to connect and you could stand in front of a connect and pull poses and stuff and it would use skeleton tracking. And then it would project a stick figure version of you with a laser. And I was like, oh yeah, I should probably just refer to that because I was, you know, I was looking into doing something similar and it's always good to check your influences. And I actually realized that he'd used my software for that. So I was like, oh cool, that was really nice. Although I've been working on it since 2013, I feel like it's only in the last year or two that it's starting to get a bit mature. It needs a load more documentation. It needs more work, basically, to be usable by anyone else but me. But I try and provide some examples. And I've had recently an artist from the Netherlands has been chatting to me about his He's got a really cool project he's working on with it. And that's cool. And he seemed to think it wasn't too much of a problem, the lack of documentation and stuff. So hopefully it's okay. But I would definitely like to get it to the next stage. But I suppose this is kind of a good lesson in open source, because if I hadn't released it open source now, I probably wouldn't think it was ready. If you have to decide to make something open source, it's incredibly difficult and you probably just won't. So I always try as much as possible to just release it from the very beginning, even though it's at a stage where I'm not particularly happy with it. At least it's out there and people are making use of it. Right. That's that's really interesting. We gather from your social media that you also volunteer at a local repair cafe sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it says here, why do you love volunteering? It seems a bit like a lead, <laughs> leading question, but like, why do you... Maybe I hate it. Yeah, exactly. And like, <laughs> why do you volunteer at the repair cafe? I'm actually, I'm totally addicted to repairing stuff. I think it's amazing. <laughs> and I guess there's the personal satisfaction of making something work that doesn't work using your brain to figure stuff out it's like problem solving it's like puzzles isn't it and it's learning as well I really love learning about all these various bits of equipment it's funny because I think back to my childhood I used to take stuff apart all the time it was only once I got a bit older that I figured out how to put them back together again <laughs> <laughs> But it's something that I've been more and more interested in in the last few years. I guess it's partly because I've done some work hacking old equipment, like the Nintendo light gun that I put a laser in and various keytars that I've put lasers in. (laughs) There's a theme emerging. I don't only do lasers. I put floppy disks into one of the keytars. I made a (laughs) floppy disk keytar. It's all these weird projects. And I guess over the last few years, I've been doing more and more electronics design. I've become very good at soldering. You know, I understand circuits very well. My strength in electronics is probably the programming side as well. But just doing that, having that experience of making that stuff and fixing this stuff, I feel like it's got me to a particular level where I can fix things now. and, And I just love fixing stuff. Repair Cafe is really brilliant. And what are the kinds of things you end up fixing for people? It's always digital radios. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, that's a bit unfair. Early on, it was digital radios, DAB. They atrociously made some of those. Often the screens just die, right? The OLED screens, the cheap ones, they're not designed to last at all. And so... 
thankfully you can get replacements. I fixed someone's TV. It had the fluorescent tubes on the sides and I upgraded them to LED. So it's it's funny, really. I don't think you can talk about repairing stuff without talking about capitalism. Capitalism has failed for so many reasons. But I think that these repairs that I do, they're not cost effective at all. If I was a professional repairer, it just wouldn't be worth it at all. It would cost more than buying it again. You know, I'm not going to go too deeply into why capitalism has failed, but this is just one of the many examples where us damaging our world (laughs) is way easier than not damaging it. I am generally optimistic about technology and society, although it's (laughs) perhaps increasingly difficult to do that. But one of the things that really heartens me is the rise in popularity of maker community and repair communities. And I also feel like over the last couple of years, I've learned loads off YouTube, right? There's some incredible repair and restore channels on YouTube. I just love watching them. And in a way that sort of feeds my repair habit as much as actually repairing stuff. (laughs) and the things i've learned from that are incredible and does the repair feed the art as well as the art because clearly the art and the coding has fed the repair like you have the skills because you've you've come up yeah but then does it go back to the into the art as well like is it a, a circle I'm not sure about that, really. I feel like they're just all the same subjects, right? right? Like um, the same thing. Yeah, it's like making and designing things is sort of the same brain power and the same skill set, I suppose. And by repairing things, you sort of develop an understanding of what failure points can happen. But I feel that instinctively the things that I design have become stronger because I've seen all the failures. <laughs> you've kind of talked about doing personal upcycling you're doing a lot of like improving these bits of keyboards and kit Mm. i mean do you get to use upcycling in your in your work more generally so there's a whole other side to my work which i haven't even mentioned it's sort of comedy it's sort of performance it's sort of science communication so there's a lot of events that i speak and present at with people like festival of the spoken nerd you know matt parker helen arnie steve mold all YouTubers and they've got a podcast. I've done events with Robin Ince, Brian Cox, those sort of shows. And I've also had my own show. I did it a couple of years ago just to see if I could really, because I've done all these sort of 10 minute sets at all these events. And so almost my show just came out of that. And that was called Hacked on Classics. And the whole theme of that was like upcycling 80s technology to a ridiculous level. So that's where the Nintendo laser gun comes in. You know, I recreated duck hunts with lasers. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a, a ridiculous show. Sounds great. Because that side of it has never really, I mean, it's made a bit of money, but it's never really made a lot of money. But it just occasionally makes something really interesting happen. Like a year or two ago, I was doing a science show at the Albert Hall (laughs) with Robin Ince. And there was Chris Hadfield and Rusty Schweikart, like actual astronauts. And I'd made a version of Lunar Lander for the laser. 
And I come out and did a bit of a spiel about Lunar Lander, you know, the arcade game, I think it's from 1979, and how it uses a vector screen, which is essentially how a laser works, right? Because in, in a vector screen, the electron beam just moves around drawing shapes. And that's exactly how a laser works, right? And I talked about how hard the game originally was. You know, some even said it was as hard as the real thing. <laughs> but how could we know? <laughs> and it just so happened that like the whole time Rusty Schweikart was on stage with me and I invited him to play Lunar Lander. I believe that his mission was the time that they test flew the lunar lander in low earth orbit for the first time so like the guy that actually flew a lunar lander was playing my stupid laser game amazing anyway that's a huge diversion from the question but i suppose i would say that in that side of my work the upcycling and the hacking is more relevance i used to run a live event called stand up tragedy so i've booked a lot of those people oh cool i thought when i saw steve mold was on one of your videos that we've had mutual acquaintances (laughs) in the kind of stand up and uh science communication community yeah actually i really love that scene and what i love is that it's so popular if you think back to when i was young and even up to like the 2000s we had such a limited range of options in terms of our entertainment But even like, you know, the repair shop show on telly, I just can't watch it because every single repair they spread out and there's a whole backstory about why this particular bicycle means so much to this person. So they don't, they end up not really talking about the details of what they've done at all, which I want to know. And of course, now we've got, I think YouTube is really good for this. Like we can just watch intelligent shows with loads of detail. And I think this nerd comedy circuit, and I suppose it was sort of born in things like QI. And I think Robin Ince was a huge influence on a lot of these people. I, I know that Robin particularly gave Spoken Nerd a bit of a leg up. And Spoken Nerd in turn have sort of given me a huge leg up. They've been hugely influential and beneficial to that side of my career but you know just the fact that we can get intelligent stuff now so much that i can't watch those shows even one that should be exactly what i love i can't watch because it's too dumb it's spread out too much i want to know what screws and bolts or how he fixed that weld or which paint he used and how he applied that and you know which you get loads on youtube you get all of that it's brilliant i do understand why kind of a particularly a mainstream show will lean towards personal stories and and those kind of things i do understand that yeah i understand it but i think you're making a good point (laughs) is that people people tend to think that that's the only place that personal connection comes in repair and actually what you're talking about is people get on stage and are passionate about the screws are passionate about the bolts and actually there is a human thing there too that's what makes it really compelling to listen to someone geeking out about you know <laughs> amazing stuff that they've they've done and getting really into the detail of it that is potentially exciting to wider audiences i i absolutely yeah. agree yeah because that's there now i mean you just see with those shows they're so popular and there's such a great audience as well everyone's like finally something yeah. that speaks to me that's for me you know it's hugely valuable And you know what I love about those shows as well is that often there are so many guests on those shows that are just lecturers or researchers or whatever. And they're so good. They're always funny, right? They're interesting and they're funny as well, always. It just blows my mind that there are so many interesting people to watch. I absolutely love it. I just feel totally inspired by those people. You know, I can only hope to be anywhere near as good as they all are. 
So, yeah, like you've been really busy recently, but what are the, the next few months or the next year? What does that look like for you and your work? I mean, it's a weird time to ask that question. Yeah. So, I mean, I should just say that we talked about what I've been doing this year. And I, I guess I did want to just make the point of how thankful I am, right, that somehow I've managed to pull a huge success out of this. I want to say clusterfuck, but I don't know if I can say <laughs> 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 this uh, huge or shit show. I can't think of a way to describe this year without expletives. And I think that many, many people didn't have the option. So I did want to make that very clear that I'm thankful and yep. appreciative. And ironically, I've ended up this year with more bigger, powerful lasers than I've ever had before and with these two projects I've had one of the most successful years I've ever had so that blows my mind really feel a bit you know like survivor guilt I suppose yep. I feel for all my fellow artists who are struggling you know I feel like the arts is on a knife edge at the best of times right all these small venues struggling to get funding yep. in Brighton here we've got this amazing organization called same sky and they worked with me on the brighton installation of laser light city but they're incredible local legends they do these two huge projects amongst many others but the two big ones in brighton are the children's parade in may and burning the clocks in december both incredible huge events hopelessly underfunded you know they bring thousands of people into the city just think of all the benefits of businesses that and hotels and restaurants in normal times at least but they struggle to get funding every year it's really tough this is another failure of capitalism that i personally believe that all of those small venues and all of those organizations bring so much value to communities and of course there's the soft value i suppose you'd call it of mental health and art you know which enriches all of our lives immeasurably and is so hugely valuable to just the experience of being a human but I actually also personally believe that those organizations bring huge economic benefits to a city we clearly all have a desire to witness magical and extraordinary moments particularly within the monotony and the hardships of this last year. The popularity of Laser Light City is a testament to the importance of art, entertainment and fun, especially during times like these. Throughout Seb's work, there is a through line of play, lightness and shared experience that shows that there are ways that we can find to celebrate and let the light in, even in extraordinary conditions. Whether you celebrate Diwali, Eid, Fireworks Night, Hanukkah, Christmas or none of the above, everything has been disrupted in some way this year. But in Seb's work, we have an example of how we can still find joy, hope and togetherness by leaning in to our imagination and finding new approaches to give us the important things that we still need. It has been a hard year, and many of us, myself included, are navigating grief, isolation and uncertainty. But thinking back over the episodes that we've made on the Restart Project, the things that I remember most clearly are the people, the exciting ideas, and the sense that even when community is hard to come by, we still find ways to support and uplift each other. 
and to organise and push for changes which will hopefully give us all a better future. Despite restrictions on how we could make this show and how we were living our lives, and the inevitable loss of some of the sounds and textures of the outside world, some of the episodes we've made this year have been some of my favourite episodes of the show, and I'm sure that I will think that again when looking back over 2021 at the end of next year. And so from me and everybody else at The Restart Project, I'd like to wish you love and peace and a very happy new year. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.